saw that suicide bomber, you know, and, and I didn't see a weapon. I had to make a quick decision at that point, a legal quick decision um, of do I pull the trigger or, or do I go towards it? If I can't see a weapon and this guy would have been a civil and I would pull the trigger, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be in Leavenworth right now. Hello, fellow leaders, and welcome to the Military Leader Podcast, bringing you conversations with today's most successful leaders. I am Andrew Stedman. Very thankful that you are here to join me today. And in case you have not heard this podcast before, my intent is that you finish it feeling like you were part of something meaningful, that you listen to the leaders featured here and walk away a better leader yourself, maybe even a better person, and then bring those lessons into your own life. And you can find this episode and many others at themilitaryleader.com, as well as blog posts, insight, resources about everything leader development. And then while you're there, I encourage you to subscribe and to receive the latest updates, and you'll find out when the blog posts and other podcast episodes come out in the future. In the last episode, you heard from the most recent commander of the National Training Center and current commanding general of the 1st Cavalry Division, Major General Jeffrey Broadwater. And then in this episode, you'll hear my conversation with infantryman and Medal of Honor recipient, Captain Flo Groberg. Captain Groberg was born in France, then became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 2001. Commissioned as an infantry second lieutenant out of OCS in 2008, he was assigned to 4th Brigade, 4th Infantry Division at Fort Carson, deploying twice to Afghanistan, first as a platoon leader in 2009, and then again as the brigade commander's personal security detachment commander in 2012. Then on a dismounted patrol on August 8, 2012, two suicide bombers attacked his element as they made their way to a key leader engagement at the Kunar Governor's compound in Asadabad, Afghanistan. And then as Flo explains in this interview, an enemy combatant walked up to the coalition patrol with the intent to detonate a suicide vest full of ball bearings. But as the threat emerged, Captain Groberg moved to interdict him, identified the suicide vest, and threw the combatant to the ground. Sadly, the resulting detonation killed four members of the patrol and injured 16, but triggered the early detonation of a second suicide bomber. You know, when I heard the account of Flo's actions, my first thought was that he did what all soldiers hope to do in combat, what we rehearse in our minds and train for. He immediately and boldly reacted to the enemy threat and did everything he possibly could do to mitigate it. Without question, his actions saved lives, including his own. During the Medal of Honor ceremony in 2015, President Obama said this about Captain Groberg. On his very worst day, he managed to summon his very best. That's the nature of courage. Not being unafraid, but confronting fear and danger and performing in a selfless fashion. He showed his guts. He showed his training. How he would put it all on the line for his teammates. That's an American we can all be grateful for. It's tough to say it better than that. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Captain Flo Groberg. Hello, fellow leaders. Welcome to the Military Leader Podcast. I am honored today to be joined by retired Army Captain and Medal of Honor recipient Flo Groberg. Uh, Flo, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking the time today to chat and uh, really appreciate you uh, being here to share your lessons and insight. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be on this podcast and I just look forward to having a awesome conversation and learn a little bit from you as well. So I'd like to start off and ask you about your childhood in France and how you came to live and serve 
in the United States. Uh, can you elaborate on that journey and what it meant to you to become an American citizen soldier? Yes, I was. You bring up a good point in terms of my background. I was born in France. I was born um, in just outside of Paris and lived in that area and in Paris for the first eleven years of my life. Uh, you know, I never met my father. Uh, and my mom was, you know, raised me for the first couple of years by herself. But then we got lucky. Right? She she met this guy named Larry, who's from Gary, Indiana. Uh, he was working overseas at the time for Motorola, and he, uh, you know, fell in love with my mom. They dated for a long time, got married, and eventually, when I was about 11 years old, he asked my mother and myself if, I, if we wanted to move to the United States. Yeah, it, I, for me, as a young man, it was exciting. You know, the idea of moving to you know, America was, you know, a country that I've been to a few times up to visit with him. But, you know, it's just everything's bigger. Everything seems so more exciting, you know, sports and all that good stuff. So it was definitely something that, you know, I was excited about. But once I got here, obviously, things were a little bit different. Um I, I didn't speak English, so that was the transition was a little bit more difficult. But you're young, and well, the best part about being young is that you learn quick, especially a language. And so I was immersed into the, the into our American society, and I, and I fell in love with it. Uh, but really, a couple things happened in my childhood that changed my perspective on on, on my life and really guided me towards the military. First, my my uncle being killed by the, the terrorist organization called the GIA in Algeria in nineteen in in. Um, yeah, 1996, in February 1996. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was a, uh, I mean, that's probably what the number one, uh, uh, you know, impactful moment in my history, you know, the, in my life history that that really guided me towards wanting to be a, in service. Uh, he was in the, he was fighting uh, the, the terrorist organization in the Algerian army. He had an opportunity to be trained in Fort Bragg at some point um, uh, uh, with the Special Forces. And, during the ceasefire, he was shot, beheaded, dismembered, put in a box, and sent back to my family. So that was a very traumatic event for our entire family, which, you know, changed my perspective on a lot of different things. And But at a young age, uh, really taught me the fact that, you know, I was no longer sheltered from this world, right? I, and now I've, I've, I've experienced not, you know, I mean, it was direct, but not directly, right? I didn't witness it, but it, trauma and terror. Uh, from you know evil acts, and so I wanted to be a part of the solution. Now, let's be honest. I was 13, 12, 13, and um, I think I was 12 years old going on 13. And so my response was more of an anger response than a logical, I you know, uh, response. And so that obviously stayed with me for a little bit of time, but the dissipated event over the course of the following years with more of a a reasoning that allowed me to, to really process the fact that I wanted to join the military to go and be part of the solution and fight. Then you fast forward a couple more years, and this time it's uh, not, I'm naturalized as a U.S. citizen in February 2001. Five months later, 9-11 happens, and you're just, you know, actually a few months more, uh, seven months later, you know, 9-11 happens, and that was the catalyst in regards to my my need and my want and my requirement, internal requirement to go out there and serve the military. Oh yeah. I honestly felt that, you know, if this country is going to come here and adopt me and give me the right to, to call myself an American, I got to go earn it. Um, no, no one told me that I'll become a naturalized U.S. citizen, that you have to go serve your country. But from where I come from, my family, every male is serving the military, whether it's in France, whether it's the United States, whether it's in Algeria, it's just in our, in our blood. 
And so there was no way for me that I wasn't going to be a part of the team that is going to go out there and eradicate that evil from the world, specifically because the same evil that terrorized my family in 1986 it was now terrorizing the rest of the world. If It's not like they hadn't been doing it, right? They've been doing it. But it got even more personal again. Oh yeah, it became a formative experience. I mean, that was probably that was probably defining for you. I mean, how old uh, were you then when your uncle was killed? I was twelve. Twelve. Wow, I'm definitely yeah. old enough to comprehend and to understand what was happening. Oh yeah, I mean, it's one of those really impactful, you know, formative years where these such events potentially can really dictate and and or play a massive impact in your foundation as a human being. Um, so yeah, I wanted to be, and you know, and when I was 18 and 9-11 happens, you're kind of like, well, this is not going away. This is going to be, this is, this is a reality in terms of like how, you know, massive this problem is. So, you know, when you have a problem and you have an opportunity to be part of the solution, you go, you be, you know, you, you put your life on the line if you need to, but you go be that solution. That's the way I was thinking. Yeah. So that's, yeah. How, that's what led me, to, that's what led me to the uh, U.S. Army. Yeah. Okay. So, so when you came over here, then did you know that uh, you you eventually wanted to join the army? Was that always kind of in your a dream of yours? Not not when I was eleven, right? I mean, I grew up and thinking like I wanted to be an FBI guy. I wanted to be a professional soccer player, and then I wanted to join the FBI. Right. I, I think I watched Silence of the Land when I was like eleven, and I was like, I want to go be that guy that finds <laughs> right. these people. I've never been like normal like that, right? <laughs> like I want to be a like I want to be joining the FBI because I wanted to go find serial killers and people that hurt children. That was <laughs> right. not like a firefighter. It was just like, you know, people were like, oh, well, you, you want to join the FBI? That sounds cute. But why, why the FBI? Because I want to go find serial killers. Like, what? You're 11 years old. What do you talk? What do you know about serial killers? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so you learn, learn English and then, and then uh, join the military and then were able to get your citizenship uh, uh, while you were, or was it right before you joined? Is that right? Yeah, no, I got my citizenship. So I, my, my dad is American, so that was easy for me to get my citizenship. Oh, yeah. You just okay. have to go through a process. Yeah. My mom, though, had to be had to go through the typical, you know, questionnaire and test and stuff. So as soon as she became a U.S. citizen and and and, and actually I became I think I became a citizen before her to be honest with you. Oh, okay. Uh, as soon as the adoption paperwork was a finalized, it's a big big process, man. You got to get lawyers and stuff. You know, it's not easy, as easy as people think. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I was adopted by my dad, I became automatically became a uh, U.S. citizen because I was under the age of eighteen. I mean, that's an that's an amazing path, and there are there are so many soldiers, um, you know, that end up coming, uh, you know, born elsewhere and then come into the states and serve. And I think it's just a, uh, uh, you know, an admirable thing to to come here and to it's really the spirit of America, right? Just to uh, to to come here and love this country and adopt, you know, adopt, uh, you know, this this cultural way of life, and then and then go on to serve is is an incredible statement. I, I mean, is there something more honorable as an immigrant that you can do? I think the fact that you get, you know, my be- one of my best friends from high school, uh, Fonwa Together, he is currently still serving in the United States Army right now. He's from Zimbabwe. And he, he you know, he, he didn't speak great English. And uh, he came in and, and you know, he, he saw an opportunity to, to really earn his way through life, mm-hmm. uh, to gain a better understanding of our history and to be part of history. And, you know, and to him, and just like myself, it made absolutely complete sense to be a part of our, our armed forces. There's no better way to represent your country and learn about your country and feel pride for your country, in my personal opinion, yeah. than to go out there and wear the uniform with so much history and go fight alongside your brothers and sisters from the United States, you know, of America and, yeah. and, 
and and others from around the world who want to be a part of this uh, of this country. And yeah, so, like I didn't think about this um, really before either. But um, the cross section of America that you get in the military, you kind of get to know. Uh, more of a more of America, if, if that makes sense, uh, by being in the military than if you just went and localized, maybe in some community and stayed there. Think about this: like in our military, right? We have white, black, Af- you know, we have Asians, we have Hispanics, we have you know uh, Muslims, we have Christians, we have Jews, Hindus, uh, we have gay, straight, we have uh, you know people from Compton to people from Massachusetts, right? We have people from Iowa, yeah. You know, Fort Lauderdale, um, you have people who have, you know, college degrees and masters. You have people who have, you know, a GED and all this in one group, potentially. Where yeah, else? Yeah, exactly. In one platoon. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then best part, not only that, but the best part is working you find such a diverse group, put them all together and have them jail as one of the, you know, best fighting forces in the world. And yet with all these differences. Political affiliations, differences as well. Republican, Democrat, Green Party, whatever, independent. They're willing to die for each other. Mm-hmm. And they're willing to be, become best friends for life. Yeah. Tell me. Tell That's me. That's amazing. There's no other, uh, no, other, no other organization or business in the world that can bring people together the way the military does. Why? Because the military has incredible ability to strip you down to your core and teach you about something that is greater than yourself, about yeah. teamwork about respect, about integrity, about selfless service. And that is why it is super important, super important um, for people to truly generalize the fact that the military is not just about going to war, but it's about the whole aspect of creating an individual that is willing to truly sacrifice for something greater than himself Mm -hmm. and for the greater good of his environment. And so whether you're serving no, you know, whether a, a veteran or an active duty or a veteran is currently still serving or, or has served, this is a, an aspect that is transferable and that is incredibly priceless to me yeah. for our, 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 our nation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of uh, transferable there, uh, I would like to for you to elaborate on kind of what you're doing right now uh, at Boeing these days. And then, um, so, you know, since you uh, got out of the uh, get out of the army and then, you know, how it compares to your time in the army, what have you been able to bring forward into Boeing? Well, I think the work ethic, our organizational um, uh, processes, understanding of teamwork first, uh, accountability, integrity, all these things that we learn in our military career, the things that, you know, allow you to succeed. Ranger School is a great example. Yeah, Ranger School, one of the big things in Ranger School is when you don't have a leadership position and you're out there, you know, taking a knee and, run, and, and running security for, for your team, um, are you falling asleep? Um, you know, when no one's watching, are you going through your bag and trying to eat a little bit of your MRE? Mm-hmm. You know, are you, um, are you putting around in the chamber like you're supposed to in your 240 when you're walking, right? So in case you get hit, you're, you can automatically, um, you know, return fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, are you ditching ammo? And things like that, right? Where you have integrity, no one's watching. And you know what? 90% of the time, you're not going to get caught. And when you get caught, then you you live with the consequences of it, which more than likely means you're, you're you're recycled and or you will be recycled because your peers are gonna, um, you know, make sure that to let you know how they feel about you trying to cut corners. Why? Because we don't do that. Yeah. We do not cut. Corners. We 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 walk the path, and whether the path is the hardest path in the world, that is what we do because that is what we're training for, is what we're designed to do, and that is the way we win. That is why we win in combat around the world is because we are willing to 
honestly follow the path and, and, and follow the hard course. Mm-hmm. Now, when you transfer that over to, to the civilian sector, um, there's a lot of those intangibles that you can bring over. You know, things like being on time, being in a proper uniform. That is really an important thing. Starting meetings on time, running, make sure the meetings go on time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other piece is, you know, understanding the teamwork. Like, last time I checked, everything that I did in the military wasn't about me. You know, nothing in the military is about me. Everything is about the mission and its people. And so that's a mindset that's very difficult to really replicate at times in corporate America for some folks because, you know, they're looking at their life, you know, careers, right? And it's like, man, if I if I don't get this good report out, um, then I'm going to get fired. Or if I don't do this, or uh, mm-hmm. some people, we call them spotlighters, right? They're, they just love the spotlight. But that's not how we're designed. Yeah. We're designed to go out there and say, what's what are we trying to accomplish? And what can I do to help? What can Where part can I play? And then when we're done with that part, it's like, what else can I do to support anything else that I can volunteer or can, or I can help you with? And, and that's just a mentality that we have team, you know, team and mission first. It's something that's unbelievably powerful in corporate America or as well as our edu- educational sectors, mm-hmm. because you don't you don't it's not that people don't do it. I'm, you know, a lot of people do it, but it doesn't come as natural to them at times as it does for us, because okay. for us, it's been instilled in us. And that's something that, you know, that is something you bring up. Um, you bring out and then you bring up and then you transfer over and it's going to, it's going to allow you to, you know, succeed early on. Now, the rest, these are, um, things that I've allowed me to succeed. You know, today, my job as chief of staff encompasses multiple, um, uh, projects, you know, mm-hmm. every day I deal with the people aspect, I deal with the financial aspect, I deal with the pro- uh, program management aspect, I deal with the supplier, you know, aspect. I went into a world of manufacturing where I had no background in, right? I'm not an engineer. I was a criminal justice and psychology major in mm-hmm. Maryland. My, my master's in intelligence policy, right? In management and intelligence policy, not in engineering or structural engineers. I don't know how to build airplanes. Um, you know, I, I didn't, couldn't tell you when I came into the role, I couldn't tell you the difference between a 787, 737-747-67, 777-X, all those stuff, right? But they didn't hire me because they wanted my subject matter expertise on airplanes and structures engineering. They hired me because they knew that I could run an operating rhythm. I could put a team together of strong folks with you know with a mindset of winning together and a mindset of making sure it's mission first and team first over you know financial security or what what can where can I get me next right stepping mm-hmm. stone type mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they brought All those me skills. in. Yeah, like, exactly. uh, yeah, all the skills you mentioned before. And I think um, that, that soldiers leaving the Army can really have confidence when they're stepping out into to other sectors. I think a lot of times we look at our MOS and say, well, I, I, you know, I really can't do anything but infantry stuff. I, I don't know anything else but being an engineer or a you know, maintenance tech. But you really do bring a lot more to the table just by, by serving than I think a lot of people realize. Oh, you got to bury that mindset. This yeah. is, I mean, we got we to get, we, we get radical on this kind of stuff, man. People need to go out there and say, bury bury that mindset you know it's 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 about um it's about the the, the character it's it's about the experiences it's about you know being able to to operate in an austere environment with confidence and trust it's about being able to be a decision maker it's about accountability these are things that we learn um all the time in military whether in garrison or in combat it's it's you know we have we have been taught to be decision makers whether you're a private or general. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's incredibly powerful. Now, we're also adaptable, 
right? And we also live in a world where overcoming adversity is like a, a AKA crisis management uh, is a daily norm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so these are things like right now, what we're going through in my company, where we've been in a great, you know, the biggest and most serious, you know, crisis in the history of the aerospace industry that we're living through. Um, a lot of our leaders are, are doing an exceptional job, but you know, it's, it helps to have a mindset of like, well, I've been in combat. I've been in positions where like, you know, the decision that I make will dictate whether or not we or, you know, as a team come home or not. And so you kind of get that perspective and you try to remember your mindset, which was, I trust my people around me. I have confidence in them. I believe in my training mm-hmm. and I'm going to trust myself that I am ready to make those decisions. And I'm going to live with the actions and the accountability of my decision-making process. So mm-hmm. which means that I'm going to make a decision. You know, that is probably the hardest thing that I've seen in corporate America for people to do. That is to make a decision and, and live with the accountability mm-hmm. behind it. Mm-hmm. To pull the trigger. Yeah. Pull the trigger. And that's what we do. We pull the trigger and we do it with, you know, a systematic uh, mindset type of process that allows us to truly feel comfortable with it, but really allows us to try to make the right decision, which is, you know, we've been training for it and we are committed to the mission. And, and we, you know, in, in times when it comes to a split second decision, you go out there and you make that decision and then you just hope that's the right decision. Same thing with business, right? You know, be, you have to be, um, you have to be willing to to go out there and look at the pic, you know, the big picture, but also look at the close quarter, you know, uh, firefight that you're in and go through that door and without, you know, thinking too much about it, trust your training, trust your experience mm-hmm. and trust the, you know, that you have the right people around you that are going to back you up and go make the right decision. The, you know, the legal right decision. Right. And that's to me is, that represents 2012, right? Yeah, and yeah. when I saw that suicide bomber, you know, and, and I didn't see a weapon, I had to make a quick decision at that point, a legal quick decision um, of do I pull the trigger or, or do I go towards him? Mm-hmm. If I can't see a weapon and this guy would have been a civilian and I would pull the trigger, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be in Leavenworth yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that that's amazing. And I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because uh, I was thinking the same thing as you're talking about the training and, and you know, uh, making the, the the quick decision there because that's that's exactly it. I mean, you were faced with a situation um, that you know many of us you know visualize in our head when we're you know we think about performing in combat and we train with our with soldiers and you know that we that we talk about and and then when it was upon you there you had a split second to do that. So so I um, yeah if you don't mind let's let's go, just go back to August of 2012 there and you you were a newly promoted captain right and. Um, the personal security detachment uh, for uh, commander for 4th Brigade, 4th Infantry Division, uh, deployed to Kunar, Afghanistan. Um, and it was uh, morning of 8 August, and you were on foot patrol in Asadabad to uh, bring this coalition and Afghan army leaders over to the governor's compound uh, for an engagement. 28 personnel, you had two brigade commanders, two battalion commanders, you know, brigade command sergeant major, uh, battalion command sergeant major, and, and, and a battalion commander along with a uh, whole host of soldiers. Uh, and then on the way to the compound, you had two suicide bombers attack your patrol, um, injuring 16 and then, um, and then tragically killing, uh, command sergeant major, uh, Kevin Griffin, uh, army major, Thomas Kennedy, air force major, Walter gray, and then USAID foreign service officer, uh, Ragai Abdel Fattah. Um, 
it, it was a, a tragic event. Um, and I, I really appreciate you talking about it today. Um, but the, the outcome would have been worse. Um, and, and had you not been able to interdict that first suicide bomber and then, and trigger the, um, you know, the premature detonation of the, of the second, and those actions earned you the medal of honor. And, um, in which you received at the White House in 2015, which is uh, where you and I met. Um, if you don't, if you don't mind, just giving us a little bit of sense of uh, the, you know, the little bit of the detail about what happened there, and then you know, describing that reaction that you mentioned a second ago, uh, the 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 split second decision, um, and kind of what what that experience was like for you. Yeah, so you know, to me, August 8, 2012 was a pure definition of uh, of what can go right and can go wrong and our military service. And so for all the folks listening, you know, one thing I've learned a long time ago is the idea of respect. Respect your peers, respect your subordinates, respect your leaders, respect everyone around you. You never know who you're going to meet again. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I've, I've people I've, I've, I've had interactions with in the military years ago that some, you know, basic training are now and, you know, or, or throughout and throughout my career, I, I, I run into them at conferences and meetings, you know, in my company. Um, so you never know, who you're going to see and how they're going to impact your life in the future. So, you know, if you, if you, if you can't find a way to find a reason to respect people, some odd reason, uh, think about um, how that could potentially impact you in the future. So figure a way, respect people, mm-hmm. but also look at, look at the process and understand that, you know, you have a job and you have, you have to look at the big picture too, but, and you got to make logical, good decisions. So when I called the day before that on August 7th, right. When I called uh, Cop Fires and I, I talked to a major, yes, at the time I was still a first lieutenant. I was getting promoted. Actually, I got promoted to captain officially on August 8th, so the day of the uh, the attack. And I asked you to, you know, for a 15-man escort, which, by the way, was standard. And I got every single time I ever called because, you know, here's the brigade commander coming. And you tell me that you're going to walk the route 15 minutes prior um, and you clear it. And so you can't give me the folks. And then when I repeat my request, you, you tell me to uh, F off um, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a lieutenant and I shouldn't be taking my boss's rank. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, you're missing the boat here. That is, that, is, that is wrong leadership. That is irresponsible. That is rude. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a failure um, in the whole scheme of things. I still thought, hey, you know, we're all deployed, so this guy's probably fired up and and you know he'll he'll come to his senses and realize that two brigade commanders are coming. I think it was three battalion commanders, um, and and you know and a heck of a host of leaders coming to to the security meeting. You might want to be at the com- you know at a combat outpost to receive them. Mm-hmm. I never in my entire military career saw a captain or a major uh, completely you know uh, dismiss the idea of being there to receive a brigade commander. Mm-hmm. Or, or mm-hmm. a battalion. It just doesn't make sense. It's just like inviting someone to your, you know, inviting your the CEO of your company to your home for dinner, and then you're not there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. When he arrives and you don't show up, right? You're like, yeah, I'll just meet you. I'll meet you uh, in 20 minutes. Yeah. It's just not, it's not even a good comparison, but that's a, an example. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And so when we landed and he wasn't there, and he took the entire, you know, security element with him. That was unsettling. And, but what do we do in the military? You adjust, you know, you, you adapt. Figure it out, adjust, make it happen. Yeah. You figure it out, <laughs> you drive on. Yeah. Why are we so special? 
um, you know, no matter how bad the situation looks. So, you know, we went out there and we walked that route. We changed things around. I, I brought some Afghan National Army. I put them up front just because I didn't, you know, we are too many green on blues at the time. Uh, so I wanted eyes on. Mm-hmm. I switched, um, I switched people uh, in, in order of uh, of, uh, of March, and I put my platoon sergeant up front, uh, sergeant, uh, sergeant uh, Brink, Brian Brink, mm-hmm. to to pull the pace of our walk because I knew that the uh, Colonel Mingus liked to walk fast, but he would never go in front of us, so he always allowed us to dictate the pace. Mm-hmm. And I put myself at the front of uh, the diamond. I wanted better eyes on and. And I commenced Sergeant Major Griffin, uh, you know, the brigade command, uh, command Sergeant Major, mm-hmm. um, wanted to be rear security. Uh, I tried to fight him on it a little bit, but he told me, hey, I'm the most, I'm this most senior war, le- war guy in, in, in this patrol. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure I know how to handle myself, and <laughs> right. we need rear security. Right. So I felt really comfortable with him being rear security because, hell, he's right. He's a badass. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I trust him. Just as much as I trust anyone else. Actually, I was really excited to have him in the back because I knew, you know, I had the best to cover our, our rear, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, you know, we 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 went, we walked right into it, right? The enemy motto that year, county network, was spectacular attacks, and they probably saw a bunch of, you know, officers. It really doesn't. It's really not that hard to to figure out that it's a bunch of officers, you know, especially an Afghan general walks like he's a god amongst other people at times mm-hmm. and you know even though i too was was a good guy i really 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 liked him um mm-hmm. he was a really good guy a good leader um but they walk around like they're generals mm-hmm. and so it was were an easy target identifiable and uh they came at us right with the 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 two uh motorcycles i gotta praise the afghan national army I, I I know people give them a lot of a lot of crap at times, and I I fought with some really good ones. I fought with some incredibly terrible ones, and mm-hmm. I fought with some borderline you know criminals. I'm mm-hmm. sure that they were terrible people, but uh, those guys really did an unbelievable job of you um, probably diffusing a lot of the threat out there. Uh, you know, he raised the top the point men raised his rifle, started screaming Dari at the and forced the motorcycles to drop, and the guy started to run away. He by himself, by the way, to this day. I wonder what happened to him. I oh, saw so him he, chase. So they saw it right he, away. He, yeah, 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 yeah. Around the yeah. corner, he saw it, but it was still enough time for one of the suicide bombers to come out of a structure to our left and get mm-hmm. really close to him. Mm-hmm. You got to remember, it's not big, right? You remember Afghanistan? Oh, yeah, it's just yeah. like. You know, it's 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 not like a New York City massive street. It's 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 you know, it's a one way. We're about to cross a bridge, so you know, you have it's it's not a fatal tunnel, but it's pretty darn close to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um and they 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 planned it right. And you you know, they were patient and they really took um you know, took advantage of the opportunity. We didn't have security to protect us, so they got real close. Yeah. I had six guys and that you know, really an eight total. To protect uh, you know a massive element of of VIPs, but and when I saw him, you know he was walking backwards parallel to us. He did uh, one 180 degree turn and another 90 degree turn towards us. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see a weapon, right? I mean he's in his man jams and stuff, but I couldn't see a weapon. So mm-hmm. in my head, the only thinking process I went through is a moment like, what do you what do you do? You you don't think, you do your yeah. job. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, like I knew what to do in firefights, just like my team knew what to do in firefight because we train so often where well, we visualize things. But I never, I mean, even though we did train for a suicide bomber at GRTC, 
it's one of those things where you're just not, you're never truly prepared to know what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Suicide bomber. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I'm actually very happy that I didn't have time time to truly think about it. And I just did what my instincts and training guided me to do, which is close on the threat. Mm-hmm. Right? right? Right. And the faster you close on the threat, the faster you get there, the faster you eliminate the threat, the less, you know, negative impact it's going to have. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. You, you make contact, you know, early and uh, if you know, quick if you can. And but you didn't even see, like you said, you didn't see a weapon. And these are is just a, a feeling, a hunch. These guys, you know, he's not walking like a normal civilian does. And uh, it, you know, at the very least, you you move to investigate quickly. Yeah, it's well. I mean, you you know, you're not stupid, right? You you saw the version, obviously. It's 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 one. It, it, it's every spidey senses in your body and you know are, are are kicked in at this point. You know, you've been, you know. I've been deployed before. I've been in firefights before. I've been in under threat. You just know it's everything here is telling you there's mm-hmm. something wrong going yeah. on. This guy in front of me is more than likely a really bad guy, and he's an enemy, and I have to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. And so because I couldn't see a weapon, you, my instincts were, man, let me, you know, he's so, he's close. So I'm like, let's go. Like, I got it. I'm going to get on him, and I'm going to beat the heck out of him, right? And so I got to him, and I, and I screamed, nothing, you know, and so I hit him with my rifle, and that's when I ran my rifle. I'm like, yeah, this dude's got, he's wearing something. I just didn't know what exactly. And so I, so my own, my mindset was, let me, you know, really take him down. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get my hands on him, and I got both my hands on his, on his suicide vest, and that's when I was like, shit, okay, he's got a suicide vest. Now, the next part of the thinking process is to continue doing your job. Mm-hmm. And I didn't sit there and think, okay, all right, so here I am. With this guy, we're dancing, and I'm holding a suicide vest, which means that I'm going to die right now. Instead, my thinking process was like, damn, that's a threat, and I have all these people behind me that Mm -hmm. we're supposed to protect, that I'm supposed to be a part of the protection team, so i got to get him away from everyone as quickly as possible, as far away as possible. And so I wanted to just get him away, and I threw him uh, as far as I could. Uh, Sam Mahoney came in, and, you know, he followed me behind, and, as, he, as the guy was falling, you know, Mahoney kind of pushed, you know, helped me push him down even further faster. Um, and uh, the guy landed on, on his chest and he detonated. Yeah. How many steps, j- just to give a frame of reference there, like how many steps or, you know, maybe one second, two seconds of pushing him back? I mean, how, how long were you guys in contact with him before he detonated? So, I mean, the whole process was about eight seconds. Okay. In my opinion, yeah, that's why I wrote that book, Eight Seconds of Courage, right. because it happens so quick. And that's the thing about that. You know this, right? It's just combat. You know, it, there's 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 long, drawn out firefights, you know, and then there's the, you know, quick change your entire life moments where from the moment I saw him. And I, I mean, I, I didn't wait. It's not like I stood there and looked at him. Right. And as soon as I saw him, I went towards him. Right. Because he was coming towards us. Mm hmm. Sprinted. So, you know, and all this, it's just like sprint, hit, you know, I'm screaming at him, sprint, hit, grab, throw, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, but in your head, it's slowed down. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> all this is very slow, but it lasted a couple of seconds and, yeah. and then, you know, everything went black. But the crazy part about all this is the reality that we face in combat. And that's one that, you know, we take home and, and we struggle with at times is that you're not in control of the outcomes. You're not in control of the outcomes of where a bullet's going to you know, bounce and where it's going to hit. Mm-hmm. You're not in control of where ball bearing's going to go. The fact that I, he detonated my feet and I got thrown 20, 30 feet and I lived. And the fact that Commander Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and Reggae, who were 
way far away from him, you know, got the brunt of the ball bearings. Oh, we're killed in action. Um, it's it's unbelievably, you know, scary and 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 and, and sad and, and devastating. But it's rule of law of combat and war. Nothing, nothing's good about war. And you know, it's it's a dirty business. Sometimes war is is, is necessary, as the Spartans used to say, right? You know, to find your true grit and get rid of evil. Um, on a second, I want to t- ask you about the training that sh- you guys did leading up to that day and, and how it might have affected uh, that. But, you know, I, I mentioned that you did what we all kind of w- would hope that every soldier would, would do, right? Perform uh, perform you know, his duty in a, in, a, in a complex, dynamic situation uh, and, um, you know, and, and confront the threat and, and eliminate it. Um, and, and President Obama recognized that during the, the ceremony. Uh, you know, he, he said this about you, which is on the 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 army uh, website, um, you know, highlighting the, you know, that day and, and your, and you and your team's actions there. But he said this, um, on his very worst day, he managed to summon his very best that, uh, that's the na- nature of courage, not being unafraid, but confronting fear and danger and performing in a selfless fashion. He showed his guts. He showed his training, uh, how he would put it all together on the line for his teammates. That's an American we can all be grateful for. Uh, I think those words just brilliantly summarize, um, you know, what that what that meant. Those that actions meant for for the team, you know, and really for uh, for soldiers who are looking to do the the same thing there uh, one day. Um, so, but how had the training that you guys uh, had done to prepare? Uh, for, you know, for, for that mission, for your, you know, your role as PSD there. Um, do, do you think that if that training was effective uh, in, in responding to the attack? 100%. Absolutely 100%. I mean, the repetitiveness of training, right, where we all want to, you know, complain about it. But we did a, so we reacted and worked on, on movements, on, on how to take care of, you know, of a, uh, of a VIP and create sort of a firefight, an IED, uh, vehicle, VBIT, all that stuff over, you know, our time in, in Fort Carson. Mm-hmm. But GRTC was really, really big for us. I, I thought, uh, because we ran all sorts of scenarios, and guess what? They ran a, a suicide bomber scenario, and we failed. Okay. Right? It was okay. one of those KLEs, and, I mean, the scenario was ridiculous. But, uh <laughs> You know, we got invited by a local elder and, you know, who was friendly, but, you know, he wanted to talk about these, you know, uh, about the situation around. And then, of course, like, suicide bomber comes into the middle of the meeting and just kills everyone. And it was a lesson about, you know, not trusting everyone, but also being, you know, respectful to their setting and things like that. So, I, it, it, it was, we learned a massive lesson, right, about how we deal with folks who are, you know, not part of the circle, locals, not mm-hmm. part of the circle. Mm-hmm. And how do we identify folks who are not part of the circle and what kind of threat they can become and the fact that, you know, the reality of a suicide bomber is there. That 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 role, that mission, that was a really, really uncomfortable day at GRTC. Because you know this, right? You know this as what you're doing now. To get the brigade commander in a situation where he's killed, and guess what? Command Sergeant was was killed in that training. Right, you know, play oh, the, was he? the you know, KIA. Yeah, that go that that that's the ripple effect that goes throughout the brigade. Be like, oh man, today the brigade commander got hit right at GRTC. Um, you know, Geronimo got him, and yeah, wow. So, 
and and but that was it was honestly we you know in hindsight at the end it was a scenario so ridiculous there's nothing we could have done right right it was just it was right well that was the whole point yeah to, to yeah, put you so, in that situation so that you could uh you, know, you can evaluate what you know what what to do what you could have done and then and then reframe and refocus that for for combat i mean that's exactly why they do it yeah so the funny thing about this whole that scenario was the fact that before we went on that patrol i told um I told the leadership, I was like, I don't think we should do this mission. Uh, the threat's too high. But, you know, it was like, we're still going to do it. We're not not going to do it, right? We're going to run through the scenario. Yeah. But I wouldn't have done, you know, that was my recommendation. I was like, no, I, there's, I, we're going into, you know, we we know that this elder is is is, a fr- is friendly, but we're, we're talking about, like, you know, him dealing with a situation of a lot of bad guys in the area and to come into a, a key leader engagement with, you know, zero intel on, on the situation, enemy situation around us. It was just made for disaster. And of course, disaster happened. But that was a, a really good opportunity for us to truly understand our processes and to truly understand our, our, you know, our TTPs. And so um, it was amazing. You know, you learn in failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we learned a big lesson. And then we, we really took that lesson to heart and, and it allowed us to be better prepared, better planners, um, uh, better communicators, and to really work with also with the with the with the commanders right and and as well as uh, the command sergeant majors on on what we expect them to do and and what how we react to yeah. things and yeah. that made our life a lot easier now in Afghanistan on that day it's what happened right? we had to we we learned through our training how to adjust on the go um life and everyone from brink barama ochart Secor, Mahoney, uh, you know, O'Brien, everyone played a role in, in saving, you know, the remainder of the lives of the team. And be, so it's not people are like, oh, yeah, you saved lives. I'm like, no, everyone played a role. Everyone. Mm-hmm. O'Chart did exactly what I told him. He grabbed Mingus and started driving, uh, you know, as soon as he saw me maneuver towards the bomber, mm-hmm. he grabbed the command sergeant major, like I told him, I mean, command sergeant major, the brigade commander, like mm-hmm. I told him to, away from the threat. Think about that, yeah. you know. Yeah, and it, it, he, it, it's just we all reacted the way we're supposed to react, and so it took me a long time to truly appreciate that after I got through my survivor's guilt. Right. But it's one of the proudest moments of my life is the fact that you know these every one of, of, of my teammates did exactly what they were supposed to on that day because they they followed the training, they followed the trust in themselves. Um, they weren't scared. They they weren't deer in headlight in a in a, in a bad situation. Uh, instead, they they were warriors. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I'm always going to be grateful for. Always appreciate. I'll never forget. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. What and what you said a second ago about evaluating the uh, the risk of the mission there is a good point about you know staying in tune to the risk profile and and whether or not a certain you know mission is worth it or not. Um, you know, I, I had a, a buddy of mine who was in Afghanistan as a company commander and was told to clear up through uh, a route that uh, and up to a town that they hadn't, you know, no coalition had been to, you know, in at least a year. And so it was going to be, you know, just uh, packed with IEDs. They knew that. And he, and he told his commander, OK, it's going to take me about six weeks to get there because I'm not going to just drive up this road like we're going to clear it deliberately, you know, uh, inch by inch because I'm not putting soldiers at risk, uh, you know, unnecessary risk just so we can drive up here and say we went there. So, you know, being able to, to, you know, like you said, Hey, this is, 
you know, we, we have, we have a, uh, a threat that's clear. It may not be worth it to do this mission. Like that's a, that's a leader, uh, you know, risk profile adjustment there to stay in tune, you know, tuned into, you know, throughout the course of, you know, training and combat. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, after, so th- the event happens and, and the team continues to respond and, and evacuate and, and, uh, and you, and you found yourself, uh, routed, uh, through Germany and then back to the States there. Um, how did how were you able to process that event in the days and weeks afterward? That was terrible. You know, survivor's guilt, and then the problem is you mixing all the drugs and and not being able to move. You're in a, in a hospital bed and yeah. you're not yourself. It's just a, a recipe for disaster. I, I had a lot of. Um, I, I I was very angry at myself. I tried to replay the scenario and over and over to find different course of actions. Then I blame myself. It wasn't healthy. It was it was very tough, and that's something that I, I know a lot of folks go through in, in, in these type of situations where, most importantly, uh, friends get killed, and I think that's the hardest part of combat. Honestly, I mean, personally for me, it was never about taking the enemy's life. I never had a bad dream about it. I've never even thought twice about it. I thought that was just part of the deal, and it was, you know, whether or not uh, um, he went or, or my guys and I went, and so... I can live with those consequences, and I've, I've never lost a minute or a second of sleep uh, over course uh, over any combat. Uh, I know because we we did it right, and we did it with integrity and respect, and we did it legally. Hmm. But when you lose a friend, you know that's that's when it's that's what hits home. That's yeah. the difficult part. Yeah. Was was there any type of uh, particular perspective or uh, you know notion or belief that you eventually kind of held on to to get you get you through that phase. It, it, it really took someone that went through uh, maybe not something similar but something different. But in mm-hmm. this case, this guy went through uh, uh, something way worse, in my opinion, and that was Travis, Travis Mills. You know, quadruple amputee. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, he really rewired me and gave me an opportunity to look at what happened and and really digest it in a way where I should be proud of my team. It should be also, I should honor our fallen comrades instead of feeling sorry for them that they made a choice to, to serve this nation with honor. Um, and they were warriors. And now me feeling sorry for myself is disrespectful to them in a way of, you know, not not honoring their commitment to our nation. Um, he's like, instead, why don't you go out there and, and honor them by talking about them, being their voice, also supporting their families and, you know, and standing tall and showcase that, you know, when we get knocked down as Americans, we get bred back up and right. we get strong from it. I thought it was just unbelievable. He didn't say in the specific words, but that's how I, I perceived it. And uh, it really changed my life in, in 15 minutes. Oh, wow. I mean, how, how important that is for people who've gone through that to, to speak in, in the lives of others. I mean, that's, that's amazing that he had an impact on you like that. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you about the, the medal because I think it's something that a lot of people are – um, just, you know, you don't have a lot of, uh, you know, personal, um, either, you know, experience with, or get to hear people, you know, the recipients talk about it, uh, that often, but how was that process for you when you, you know, heard that you were nominated, um, you know, for it and then, um, you know, going through that, that process there by receiving it and then afterward, how, how it's changed your life since then? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was, I was a civilian, um, I knew I'd been put in for the Distinguished Service Cross at some point. Mm-hmm. I figured the Army did what it does best at times, which is lose paperwork. So, <laughs> right. you know, and um, I, um, 
you know, I wasn't thinking about it, but I was working for the government at, at the time, and it was kind of really interesting because I, I really, I really didn't understand like the concept of of, of the new reality I was going to be facing. Mm-hmm. I just know that I was really uncomfortable with it, the fact that now I was going to be a Melvin recipient, and I really didn't think about Melvin recipients ever in my time of service. Really didn't. I never met one. And, you know, you, it was almost a myth, right? Right, like a right. Oh, uh, you know, Audie Murphy, Doolittle, right? Uh-huh. These folks you're talking about, you're like, yeah, that's great. Your stories and movies about them, but mm-hmm. I've never met one. Mm-hmm. I'll never, you know, I don't want to be in, a, in, in, in their society or, or a group because that means that something really bad's happened, more than likely, and more than likely I'm dead um, <laughs> or most importantly and, and worse is my friends are dead. Yeah. So when they, when I got the call from the president of the United States, President Obama, and you know, he obviously let me know that I'll be receiving the medal and the honor behind it and the responsibility behind it. Uh, it took me a long time to really digest it. And, but I, and I was really, I've never been excited about it. Um, yeah. uh, I wasn't even humbled at first by it. I was just kind of like, what the hell is going on? Like, why? Why yeah. the Medal of Honor? Like, yeah. from what? For what? Uh, but then the, the way I, I went through it and processed it, because I was feeling really uncomfortable and I really didn't want it, I, I talked to the Gold Star families and they were all super excited about it. Mm-hmm. They were proud of me, proud of the team, but most importantly, they wanted, they, they knew that uh, their husbands and, you know, would be and father, you know, would never be forgotten. And that they, that, you know, the world will know about August 8, 2012, uh, about the men and women who wear this uniform and, and, and unfortunately lose their lives at times for us. Uh, and so they all came to the White House. I, I, I told them to come to the White House. President Obama did an awesome job of, and a really honorable job of, of asking them to stand up, recognizing them, recognizing the team. And uh, on that stage, I felt shame because... You never join the military to be recognized. And so right. everything we do in the yeah. military is as a team. So when you're standing alone and your team's there on a stage, um, it's uncomfortable. And, and I, was, I was, like the president said, it was my worst, worst day of my life. And here I am being deemed a hero and people are celebrating that day yeah. or yeah. celebrating me. They felt real uncomfortable. But again, the Gold Star families, it was about them. And so I made a promise to myself on that day and, Right before that day, really, but every time I talk about the medal, every time I talk about that day, I'll talk about Griffin, Greg, Kennedy, and Reggae. And then since then, this is a it's a humbling award, obviously with incredibly great responsibility, and it's a massive platform to do some good. Some and so some of the guys do good. Some don't don't do anything because they just want to go live their lives and they're entitled to do so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. they just want to go in peace and be, you know, be with their families, do their job. And, uh, and, and some, you know, probably uh, have other, you know, do other stuff, other stuff with it. But to me, uh, I just wanted to make sure that I earn it just like I want to make sure that I earn the, the right to take a breath every, you know, every day because I'm here and I know quite a few of my friends are not. So you have to be a positive influence in your own environment, your world around you. And 
So it hasn't really changed anything with the medal. I was planning on living my life that way with honor and to be do, to do stuff greater than just for myself, around my community, around my family, around my friends, around our military, our nation, the world. And so this just goes hand it, it, it sort of goes hand in hand. And now, of course, you have a medal, you're, you become a subject matter expert in everything. Mm-hmm. I probably can right. tell you what the weather's going to be like tomorrow <laughs> in, in, in California, right? Because, right. you know, the medal is know-it-all, according to people. Um, we get invited to a bunch of ridiculous things and that we shouldn't even be invited to. And it's just, just because you're an icon to some folks and it's quite ridiculous, which, which is a dangerous thing. That's why you have to live with, just like, you, you know, you, when you wear a uniform, you represent every service member and, and the past. So you have to have honor. And that's the same thing. So, yeah, absolutely. And lastly, it keeps me connected to the military, too. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, unbelievable. But, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. I mean, I'll tell you from the um, seeing what you've, you know, what's on out there online and the speeches you've given and just and just knowing you. I mean, you, you, you do a great job of making sure that people know what that metal represents um and then it's not something that uh you consider uh, yours by any stretch of the imagination it's uh it's uh it's the team it's the soldiers it's the families uh, as you said so i mean that that really does come through and and uh, i think it's important for for everyone to see and realize um so uh just as before we close here um just like to give you a you know an opportunity to talk to the the junior leaders out there we have uh you know soldiers ncos officers who you know listen to the podcast here some you know uh, preparing for training, preparing for combat here. So, so what's your, what's your takeaway, uh, you know, lesson that you would, uh, that you would speak to the, the junior leaders out there who are preparing for potentially that, that moment that you had back in 2012? I, I would say the first thing to our, our, our junior officers, you know, the number one thing that I've, I did as a young Lieutenant, when I, especially when I got in combat, cause my, my, my path was a little bit different. No, actually not mean not different in many, um, at the time, you when you joined the military, you went to Iraq or Afghanistan. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, that was definitely a, a, a ticket out there. But I went in as a um, new lieutenant and in the middle of a combat deployment. And the number one thing that I, I could do and think of doing, and, and of course my dad gave me a little bit of guidance behind it as a former NCO, was to go find my most senior ex, uh, NCO, my platoon sergeant, when I became a platoon leader. And talk to him man to man and asking him for guidance and mentorship while mm-hmm. still staying strong. Mm-hmm. So my point is, it's okay to be vulnerable, but it's a calculated vulnerability. It's one where you're showing your true grit as a leader in, this, in the essence of, I am here to lead, but also follow, right? We talk about this, follow me while I lead. Right mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And as a leader, you have to be willing to to listen and learn from everyone. Everyone. Think about this. I came to a team that, as a leader of that team, where I had the least amount of experience out of every single one. Mm-hmm. Every one of them. Mm-hmm. How crazy is that? And I'm supposed to go out there and let them know, like, this is what we're going to do in this patrol. No. So, so I went, went in and I, I told my like, like, hey, I'm taking, I'm taking my, my pride, pride my ego, my rank, I'm putting it to the side, I'm talking to you, man, 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 asking you for your guidance and mentorship and support to be the right effective leader for this position. My number one mission is to secure our men so that we accomplish the mission. Right, that's it. And 
I, I, I put, put myself, myself out there, there and, and, and I, I think, think that, that, that created an incredible positive bond between, between the two of us. us. Well, then he also, of course, you know, famously told me, well, I need you to shut up for the next seven days. You know, <laughs> we're going to go on patrol, watch the way we react to contact, the way we communicate internally, learn everything you can about the area of operation, all the elders and the villages you're going to own, all the target reference points, talk to the man, but don't get too close to him, and so on and so on, all yeah. the recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. That faced a second very difficult moment in my, in my very short time um, on the on the ground at the time, which was this guy. I just asked him to help me, and he gave me his first guidance: "Just shut up for seven days." Um, How is that going to go over with the soldiers? So the way you do it is you're honest and transparent. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Oh my gosh, honesty and transparency, even in the military, that is um, a, a way to truly break down barriers and, and, and eliminate, uh, you know, the water cooler talk and and also to gain respect. So we went and talked, talked to the team. I lo- we, we, we told them exactly what we're going to do. Hey, I'm coming in, new lieutenant. Obviously, I don't have the experience that you all do, but I'm here to lead. So I'm here to also follow. I'm also here to understand how you work as a team. So for, of course, the next seven days are um, – Sergeant uh, First Class uh, uh, Corey Staley will be taking lead on, on some of the patrols. I will be out there as an observer, but I'll also, also make recommendations. And then after seven days, we'll, we'll do an official turnover, um, you know, the reins to me, and we'll go from there. Always, but remember, it's all about the team. It's always about working together. It's always about accomplishing everything together. So I will take input and recommendations and all that stuff. Now, did every, and, and, and I think the team appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Now, did everything go well all the time? No. I had jackasses on my team, yeah. and I handled them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I handled them, and and I and I told them you know, some of them like the same thing that I told you earlier. Is, you know, respect everyone because you never know how that person's going to impact you. And I think one specific soldier was a big jackass. We had a pretty big conversation together um, about it, and um, I told him I was like, you know, one day I might be the one that's going to save your ass, and whether it's here or or back in garrison, and. That conversation didn't last too long. It took a couple months, a couple weeks later, and he was facing a pretty uh, negative situation on, on the legal side of the house. Something he'd done uh, prior in uh, in Garrison, and well, I was one of his top advocates, just you know, in support. Um, you know, he sort of saved his career, but in the end, he still had to get out at some point. But it could have been a lot worse. So it's about you know, treat everyone with respect, but. We had an un- unbelievably powerful, uh, positive tour together as a, as a unit. Yeah. And because I was willing to, as a leader, to take my pride, my rank, and my ego, put to the side, and look at the big picture, and I was willing to put myself on the, on the chopping block uh, with, with the world vulnerable. Uh, because I knew that it was honestly how I felt, and I, that was the best way I could think of of, of gaining some respect, but also really truly gaining that help that I needed. Now, on the flip side, it goes, you know, my platoon sergeant helped me. He, you know, I was lieutenant number 1,119 million, right, that he's had to deal with over his <laughs> yeah. long career. And instead of dismissing me, instead of being like, just another guy, and like, we'll just, we'll listen to him, but we really won't listen to him. We'll do whatever the hell we want. He didn't do that. He had respect and, and, and he had honor and, and he really worked with me and I 
I, he's a reason why I was successful in my military career. It wasn't all my training is because I had a strong non-commissioned officer that took me under his wing, that worked with me, that trusted me, that followed me, also guided me, and you gave me the confidence uh, early on in my young military career that I could do this. And I think that's incredibly important for our NCOs to understand that they play a bigger role than they think on a, on a leadership setting of a, of a young officer, but also overall. That people, you know, your your specialists, your privates are, are going to watch you and learn from you and how you treat. So if you're the guy that's going to go out there and talk shit about, uh, you know, your lieutenant or always complain about a new lieutenant, uh, even though even if the lieutenant is completely incompetent, um, you're, you're you're setting a bad example and you're you're creating this chain reaction that's going to be you know negative and uh, for the whole team. But if you're willing to go out there and teach and learn, and if, the, if that lieutenant's not wanting to listen. Uh, then you, you, you go out there and, and you keep doing the right thing and you talk to your teams, you explain to your teams the importance of, of, of you know, of leading the right way and then you, you're going to be good. So to mm. me, it, it's it's about being accept. It's about a tactical you know, way of being vulnerable uh, that shows respect to your team and, and shows that you're committed to them. Um, it's never been if it, but if you show up and you think it's all about you, uh, I know it all. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. Good luck. Yeah, that's a. I got to tell you, that's a, a powerful perspective uh, that's applicable at, at every level. I mean, not just as an as a new officer coming in, but every position you take, and um, you know, you have to have the the adaptability to to figure out the new job because we switch every year or two, right? In a new in a new assignment. Um, and and we have new teams that we fall in on, and so uh, that ability to say. Hey, I don't have all the answers. Uh, I, I need to learn from you and I need some, some help. Um, I have confidence that I'll get there, but I'd appreciate your help. That's that opens the door, right? Like that, like you said, um, and, and, and also shows that you respect their knowledge and experience and, you know, in their opinion and shows that you're a human being. Cause what, I mean, you know, soldiering and, and this is all about, uh, it's all about people because there are people everywhere and, and, um, this, and, people are how we get it done here. And so, you know, you're just, just one of them. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a fantastic perspective there. Um, cause there's a lot of pressure to think that the new Lieutenant coming in has got to, has got to know everything. And, uh, I mean, I've been there uh, for sure. I, I was, I had the same thing. I had a platoon sergeant who, who pulled me aside and said, okay, let's have the, let's have the the real chat here. And, um, before we go to Afghanistan, that was in 2002. And, uh, yeah, and, um, it, it saved me for sure. I, I owe a lot of credit to, to Chuck McManus for, um, for, for bringing me along that path. Cause it stuck with me for, for years, um, as have the conversations I've had with, with NCOs just throughout their career. Uh, cause they do, they serve that role at every level, um, and have that coaching, you know, that coaching mindset. It's, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable how powerful it is. Right. I mean, it could have gone so many different, could have gone so many different ways. Uh, and I've seen it, I've seen decent, you know, I see borderline lieutenants, where if they're taken under the wing of a strong NCO, they'll succeed. But if they're dismissed by that NCO and that team, they failed. Yeah. And I've seen it where yeah. they've been dismissed and they were borderline and, had, and, and their career lasted four years. They're out. Um, and I've seen it where today they're majors, right? And they're doing some really awesome things in the military. And, you know, I was on, I, I'm not saying I would have been a bad lieutenant, or a good lieutenant, no matter what, I, I was really, I was, I think I had a mindset of like, I will do whatever the hell it takes to, to make sure that we accomplish the mission, but I, I take care of my man. I always had that motto. So I think I would have been all right, but 
Yeah. Man, I don't think I would have ever reached uh, the heights of of my leadership uh, potential unless it was through the support of Staley, honestly. Yeah. In, in my military career, yeah. at least, but at least not as quick, right? Um, so he 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 completely. I owe him so much. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, Flo, um, uh, well, we'll let you go here. Uh, but I want to thank you for uh, taking the time here to chat and to share your experiences and, uh, and lessons and insight. I know, um, you know, as you said, that was the, the hardest day of your life. Uh, and, um, but I know that folks listening here appreciate you revisiting it here so we can draw the, you know, the, the experience and lessons out of it that, that have already uh, become a reality for soldiers and leaders out there and, and will continue to become a reality. And so, um, I just want to, you know, say that, I mean, I personally, uh, admire you for, um, what you were able to do with the team and then how um, you were performed on that day to, uh, to mitigate the risk in, in the only way that was, uh, possible at the time and, and you know, to do what every <laughs> every soldier uh, wants to do which is close with and to, and destroy the enemy and so um I, I look up to you man and uh, i really appreciate you taking the time here to talk with us well you know what i think yeah, first of all i appreciate that i mean it's, it's humbling and you know coming from you specifically uh but thank you for everything you're doing thank you for everything you've done and you know, everything you're going to continue doing for the team and, and this is an awesome opportunity here to be a part of this podcast with you and and share some thoughts. And I, I just think it's so cool that in today's day and age, we have, we have so many different opportunities to, to have a conversation, uh, to learn from others, you know, others' experiences, uh, and to, to form your opinion, opinion based on different perspectives. So, um, you know, I look forward to listening to uh, some of your other podcasts and, and learning myself and anything you need, you know, I reach me. All right. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Flo. And, uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. You know, several times now I've heard Flo recount the day of that attack, and it still amazes me that he did what he did in the moment that mattered. But you know, those moments happen routinely in combat, don't they? Soldiers do the right thing all the time at crucial moments. Sometimes it happens in the midst of a tragic situation, and then other times it just changes the situation just enough to prevent something worse. Either way, more moments are coming, which is why we train to be ready for them. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you want to check out other episodes, head over to themilitaryleader.com and be sure to subscribe when you get there so you find out when the next one comes out. Remember, the views expressed here do not represent the Department of Defense or the U.S. government in any way. Thanks for listening and lead well. <laughs>